a panel of three of the most respected scholars uh, of the Great Depression and New Deal eras in the United States. Uh, all three have travelled many miles to be with us today. I'd like to uh, just thank them very much for coming. The received high school history version of the Great Depression, uh, and here I'm borrowing a formulation from Steve Horwitz of St Lawrence University, goes something like this at four main points. Firstly, that the laissez-faire policies of Herbert Hoover caused the stock market crash and the Great Depression. Second, that Hoover was committed to laissez-faire and did nothing once the economy started tanking. Third, that President Roosevelt and the New Deal saved us all from disaster. And four, to the extent that the New Deal didn't save us from economic collapse, World War II did. These theories, and uh, I guess Amity has just punctured some of them, or at least shared her thoughts on their merits, are not of solely historical interest to the extent they persist. uh, They influence policymakers today. Many of you will have seen the ads uh, run in major national newspapers by Cato, Uh, rejecting President Obama's assertion that the value of fiscal stimulus is a settled topic among among economists. Of course, uh, having said that, the New Deal was not primarily about fiscal stimulus. It's another, I guess, long-standing myth. Instead, a complex mix of monetary spending, regulation, tax, industrial policy, pricing policy, uh, and as well as lending policies. Our first panel today, then, is designed to explore more thoroughly the effect of those policies on the pre-war economy, but more importantly, to extend what we know about that era to the policy-making environment today. To begin our discussion, our first speaker will be Harold Cole. Harold is a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania and a consultant to the Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. He's a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research and is on the editorial board of the International Economic Review. A prominent scholar of macroeconomics and sovereign debt, that's an expertise might be more useful in coming years. Debt, debt defaults. Uh, he has authored numerous articles in the best economic journals, and he co-wrote with Lee O'Hanion an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal in February on how government prolonged the depression. Please join me in welcoming Hal Cole. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, the opportunity to speak. I'm going to try and make some comparisons, uh, and in particular, I'm going to be comparing the current downturn, sometimes called the Great Recession, uh, to the Great Depression. Let me first start out with sort of a very broad brush uh, historical perspective. We've done a lot of studies over time of country performance, and one of the things that sort of leaps off the page is the fundamental factor that drives the, the uh, income differences across countries at any point in time and also the growth of country per capita income over time is productivity and, productivity and uh, innovation. And so one of the things to keep in mind from a longer-term perspective, a 10-, 20-year perspective, you, know, you want to keep your eye on the bouncing ball. And the bo- bouncing ball ultimately is the factors that lead to productivity growth and, innova- and uh, innovation. Along with this panel, we see evidences of countries that go through periods of economic crises, and some of those countries are able to rapidly reorganize and restore their financial system, and what they normally see is a fairly rapid recovery and a return to their former growth path. However, that's not the only outcome. 
And one of the problems that could come in, especially during periods of crisis, is that you put in policies that end up generating distortions in productivity or innovation or the labor markets or in financial markets, and that these policies can have long-run negative consequences in terms of uh, growth. So I'm going to try and do three informative comparisons. I'm going to look at, I'm going to compare our Great Recession, uh, and I'm going to use GR for that, to the Great Depression in the United States in the 1930s, and also to the Japanese Depression in the 1990s. I'm going to argue that actually, uh, in some fundamental respects, the Great Recession, our current crisis, is actually closer to what went on in Japan than to what went on in, uh, uh, in the U.S. in the 1930s. And the, the, the thing that I'm going to point to is, that, is to the financial factors. I'm going to argue that both in our current crisis and in the crisis that went on in Japan, financial factors seem to have been, played a predominant role in a way that they didn't play a predominant role uh, in the Great Depression. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the mistakes and successes that we can uh, uh, potentially learn from these past experiences. So let me set the stage a little bit. Let's talk about the, the Great Depression of the 1930s. It was a, uh, an extreme recession that began, you know, differing times for different countries, but the U.S., it started in 1929. Uh, industrial output, output peaked in uh, July of 29, is down 12% by year's end. The stock market peaks in uh, September of 29 and then crashes in October uh, and continues on down. In real terms, actually, the, the stock market ends up down at 1.87%, which gives you a, a, a figure to have in mind. The U.S. troughs at about 1933, so that's a pretty long downturn. During the 30s, the U.S. goes through a reorganization process, and they actually do uh, uh, manage to restore stability in the financial system. And one of the things you see is productivity return fairly, I mean, rapidly to trend. And by 1936, you're basically back to uh, trend in terms of normal productivity growth. And the 30s end up being an above-average decade in terms of productivity growth, quite surprisingly. Now, unfortunately, besides the good policies that sort of went, that were associated with the, the reorganization, the restoration of the financial system, and we could add other policies along with that, um, we also, unfortunately, adopted policies that coupled cartelization with high wages and that those policies end up impeding the recovery, and that where they impede it is in, in employment. And employment only weakly recovers, and we only see it, you know, sort of coming back, actually, in the 40s. All right. Um, let me set the stage a little bit for Japan. What you see with Japan is you have a, uh, a stock market and a real estate crash in the 1990s. That should sound uh, uh, familiar now. And this leads to a crisis in the financial system, especially in the banking sector. Now, the response uh, by the government was to try and prop up the, the, the banking sector, and they did this through asset purchases and capital injections, very similar to what we're doing now. Now, one of the things they also did was they allowed insolvent or nearly insolvent banks to continue operating and through the banks to, uh, to allow their insolvent customers to keep operating because the banks had no desire to, uh, to uh, write down the debts uh, and, in fact, actually extended new loans to those customers. And we had a sharp increase in expenditure on infrastructure. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the result in a second. Okay. So I'm going to do two comparisons, first real side and then financial side. And to do the real side comparison, what I want you to look at there is this little equation. Uh, we have output here. It's being produced by a combination of productivity and labor input. 
The productivity measure here is not perhaps the best productivity measure. I'm going to call that labor productivity, but it gives us a simple dichotomy. So productivity times labor input gives you output, and I'm measuring everything in output per adult and adjusted for normal growth. Okay, so there are three lines on the chart. The red line is our current downturn. The green line is actually from the recession of 1981-82, and uh, the blue line is the, the Great Depression. So a couple of things that leap off the page there. First of all, the Great Depression, much worse. Uh, and as you see there, the trough down there in 1933. The current downturn has actually reached the level in terms of output that we saw in what is a severe post-war uh, downturn, the 81-82 downturn. So we're starting to look like a severe post-war downturn. And the worrying thing for the, US, the current downturn is the trend, that we're declining so sharply. But the other thing to note is, during the first few quarters of the downturn, almost nothing happened. There was a lot of action over on the financial side, very little on the real side. If we look at employment, what we see is the you know, severe downturn in employment. This is employment to population. So there's a severe downturn in deployment uh, during the Great Depression. That's the blue line. And then we're again making the comparison between the, uh, our current downturn, the red line, and the 81-82 downturn, uh, which is the green line. And one of the things you notice is actually in terms of employment, our, our, our current downturn looks, uh, you know, pretty severe. It looks worse than the 81-82 downturn. Obviously, it's not the Great Depression. And one of the things that, you know, should be sort of coming away here is you want to be careful about comparing the, 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 the current downturn to the Great Depression. It was, you know, much worse on the real side. Now, what's interesting here is what happened to productivity. Normally, what we see in most, uh, in most downturns is productivity and labor input moving hand in glove to sort of drive down output, and that's what we saw in the Great Depression, and that's what we, see, we actually see in the 81-82 downturn. It's only recently, actually, that we're starting to see a downturn the last couple quarters in uh, labor productivity, and even then, the labor productivity downturn looks relatively mild. So this looks to be a downturn that's primarily driven by employment, and that actually it was a long time sort of coming, a very slow starting downturn, and then only recently with a sharp down, uh, downturn in employment are we seeing uh, some action. Okay, so that's a comparison of what happened on the real side in the U.S. Here's a comparison of what happened in Japan. I've plotted both labor productivity and output, and you notice those two plots lie on top of each other. That's a very common phenomenon where you see that labor productivity is, seems to be driving output and is very closely associated with how the country does. Now, Japan was booming during the, you know, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. They then hit their peak there in 1990, and then you get the stock market crash and the real estate crash, and then basically stagnation. And since this is done relative to trend, what you see is uh, a decline relative to what the kind of uh, normal growth path that you would expect. And so Japan has been decaying and, and, and you know, in essence, still has been, is still uh, down relative to what that kind of uh, prognosis would have had in 1990. Okay, so just to summarize, what we saw in the Great Depression was huge falls in both employment and productivity. But the Great, Great Recession, our current downcome, really seems to be driven by employment and not so much by productivity. And Japan, you know, there's basically a productivity stagnation is what was going on there. If we make a comparison on the financial side, we see some interesting differences. First of all, financial events preceded the crises in both the, our current crisis and in Japan. We had the, the turndown actually in housing prices starts in 2006. 
Um, but real events led the stock market uh, crash in uh, the Great Depression. Moreover, if we look at the magnitude of, the, of, of some signs of financial distress, and especially if we think about them relative to the size of the output fall, well, then things look actually much bigger on the financial side in that relative sense now than they did during the Great Depression. Risk spreads, for example, are actually wider now uh, in the Great Recession than they, than they uh, were in the Great Depression, and they're especially wide relative to output, since you know, output did not, has not actually fallen very much in our current downturn and actually fell a great deal in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the Great Depression. The stock market fall is bigger in the Great Depression, but you know, normalizing relative to output, not bigger. And there's a lot of financial firm failures in both, but the character of them is very different. In the Great Depression, people often talk about the number of banks that failed. Well, there were tons of little banks, especially little agricultural banks. The, the fraction of these banks, you know, the actual fraction of deposits that were in these banks is sizable, but, you know, it, it's, it's quite a bit. It's a, of a significantly smaller magnitude relative to the number. And, in fact, what you see is the big money setter banks actually do fairly well, relatively speaking, and it's really these small, especially small agricultural banks that failed in the Great Depression. In contrast, what we've seen in our current downturn is, you know, it's been the major money center institutions that have uh, failed or nearly failed, and that was true both in our current downturn and in uh, the Japanese uh, crisis. So any kind of economic crisis is going to have a financial component, but you would expect, you know, a downturn. I mean, for example, you'd expect a downturn to lead to a stock market fall, firm failures, risk spread increases, but... And you'd also expect this to be bigger, the, size, the, the larger is the downturn. But for a financially driven crisis, what you'd expect is the financial factors to lead the real, or at least be commiserate with the real. And you'd expect the, financial fa- uh, the signs of financial distress to be large relative to the output fall. And I think that's a pattern that you see in uh, our, our last two comparisons. And for non-financial compar- uh, crises, you would expect more sort of real-side signs of distress. And there I would point to the normal productivity uh, decline. So what does that lead me to, to, to say as well? I think there's some, pretty, there's some strong similarities, but also dim, uh, lack of similarities in the sense that the great uh, current downturn in Japan seemed to, seemed to have had a financial factor that was bigger and more dominant than what we saw in the Great Depression. And that suggests to me that the real comparison that we should be making in terms of policy and what can happen and evaluating outcomes is probably uh, to Japan and not to uh, the Great Depression. And it also suggests that the, our policy's focus should be on the financial side. Okay, so history's lessons about uh, government responses. Well, first of all, avoid counterproductive distorting policies. Those have been sort of mentioned here. And let me sort of go into a little bit more detail about that. Uh, I'm not very good at memorizing facts, so I, I always have a cheat sheet. Uh, okay, so let me talk about that. We sort of had a couple of phases of these distorting policies during the, the, the downturn. The first phase was actually uh, initiated by Hoover, who got together the titans of industry, and, and they, they made a no-wage-cut uh, no pledge. And by and large, they kept that pledge for the first couple years of the downturn. Well, what do you see if you don't cut wages for businesses that are in distress? Well, they're going to cut employment. Um, that was then followed under, under uh, FDR in sort of a two-phase policy. The first part was the New Deal with the National Industrial Recovery Act. And then the second phase was the National Labor Relations Act, uh, combined with very little antitrust enforcement. 
and uh, certain things like sit-down strikes, which were used to, to, uh, to uh, promote uh, unionization. Now, just some numbers that sort of stand out. If we look at total hours, total hours are down 27% in 1933. But by 1939, which is the tail end of the decade, they're still down 21%. So the recovery, while we see this recovery in the productivity part, that A term, we don't see the recovery in L. So L falls tremendously and doesn't recover. And what we also see is countervailing. We also we see that's very strange is that industrial wages are actually above trend. So we our estimates are that uh, industrial wages are about 17 percent above trend in 34, and by 39 they're actually 22 percent above trend. So you see these very high wa- industrial wages. At the same time, actually employment is extremely depressed, even more de- depressed than in the economy as a whole in the the industrial sector. Another comparison is if we look at wages relative to total factor productivity, which is the standard measure, what we see is in 1939, that ratio is about 25% higher than it was in 1929. During the war, there's a huge policy switch where these policies are actually undone, and in fact, after the war, we get the, uh, the uh, uh, Taft-Hartley, and so we actually return to trend growth after, you know, starting in the early 40s. Um, okay. So what I come away from that thinking is that's a big set of mistakes, and that was actually the predominant, I would argue, the predominant mistake for the latter part of the, the latter half of, the, of the, the decade. We certainly want to avoid that. Some of our industrial policies now are beginning to rate, make me more nervous. The labor policies, there's some things to be a little bit nervous about, but as been mentioned, you know, taking over the auto industry and, and hoping to run that effectively uh, I, when I wrote that slide, I was, I was not as nervous about that, perhaps, as I am now. Um, now, on the other hand, they did some, what I would argue, were quite good things in the 30s. They restructured the banking system fairly quickly and thoroughly. Um, you know, they had the banking holiday. They had the creation of the FDIC and deposit insurance, which stopped runs. They had the creation of the SEC, which originally, as formulated, used to run pretty well, worked pretty uh, effectively. And... Um, you know, they even had some innovation. The original formulation of Fannie and uh, uh, Fannie Mae allowed us to go from mortgages that were only five years to mortgages that were longer-term mortgages. Uh, however, um, when I look for things not to do, I look at uh, Japan, and the key thing is, you know, don't prop up insolvent institutions, and particularly insolvent banks. They have terrible incentives, and not only will their presence hurt the good banks, but what they'll end up doing and how they'll end up channeling money, and also ultimately the costs, uh, can be extremely large. Um, I'm probably going to run out of time before I say too much more than that. So, uh, you know, some form of, of uh, bankruptcy is actually probably cheaper than our current bailout. Um, you know, one of the things that we talk about is we're extending government insurance. We saw that being extended to a variety of, of different financial institutions outside the banking sector. Well, extending government insurance is a very tricky thing because as you extend insurance, you lose the pricing of risk. The pricing of risk comes primarily through the debt holders. And the debt holders sit there and say, how much am I going to charge you in terms of interest if you borrow from me? Well, I'll charge you one rate to borrow for a safe project, and I'll charge you another rate, a much higher rate, to borrow for a very risky project. Well, the problem is if the debt holders feel like they're insured, they're now going to just charge you the safe rate. So if you can borrow at a very safe rate, leverage up to 20 or 30 to 1, and now start to gamble, how do you like that? You love it. And then the problem is the government, if you're insuring that, is going to be left holding the bag. Well, whatever you insure, 
you're going to have to regulate very tightly. Um, so we're going to need to restore regulatory over oversight to anything we ensure. And one of the things we're going to have to come to grips with is the too big to fail. If we're going to label institutions as too big to fail, well, you know, they throw some awkward hazards for us. And then we may want to think about how many of these too big institutions are charging taxes or some way of limiting uh, size or creating a price on the size. And lastly, you've got to worry about stifling financial innovation. Um, I'm probably completely out of time. One minute. One minute? Okay. The benefits of the stimulus program, probably exaggerated. Um, you know, there were some large stimulus spendings at the end of the 30s, I mean, the end of the 30s, but really it's actually in the 40s. Uh, we saw the Japanese stimulus spending. One of the problems is once you have infrastructure spending in the mix, it's very hard using standard theory to allow us to determine the impact of this policy, and we don't have any good natural experiments like the big surprise run-ups in military spending in response to wars. Um, so what I would say, though, is the evidence that we have, which is the aggregate evidence, is pretty bad. Uh, however, it should, it should give us uh, you know, some fairly high degree of caution uh, with respect to how much we can expect, and I think uh, Price is going to fill us in more on that. Thank you very much. Thanks, Hal. Our second speaker is Randall Parker. Randy is currently press Professor of Economics at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. His research focuses on macroeconomics in, and economic history in general and the economics of the Great Depression in particular. He's assembled two books of interviews with economists on the Great Depression and he's just signed a contract to edit a, ref a reference volume called The Seminal Works of the Great Depression, thereby preventing the need for any further research on the topic, I guess. Uh, he also writes a very funny blog where he talks about macroeconomics, politics, duck hunting, thoroughbred horse racing, other topics not amenable to publicity at a family-minded think tank. Uh, please welcome Randy Parker. Thank you very much for the invitation to come to the Cato Institute. Um, I probably most closely align with the libertarian way of thinking, so I find myself in the uncomfortable position of trying to defend Roosevelt today to try to have some diversity, if you will, in the, uh, in the panelists today, and in trying to think about what to say and defend Roosevelt than sweating worse than Ryan Seacrest watching Brokeback Mountain. Thank you. That was a good joke. I'm glad you finally laughed. <laughs> in doing so, then, in thinking about the New Deal, I want to try to think as Roosevelt did 76 years ago without the benefit of hindsight that we currently have. When Roosevelt took office, he was facing a 30% deflation, a 55% decrease in industrial output, and remembering that since the United States produced half of world industrial output, the United States alone represented a 25% decrease in world industrial output. Half of all the financial institutions that existed in 1929 were vaporized by March of 1933. The money supply had fallen by a third, as Milton Friedman so poignantly pointed out. And he was looking at a 25% unemployment rate. So Roosevelt's first term was nothing but a grand experimenter. He wanted to try to do something different because he needed to. To be clear, one needs to divide the New Deal and Roosevelt's actions into two parts. One was provided direct relief, and the other one 
involved planning and the control of markets. Direct relief was provided to hungry, desperate people who looked to our government with sunken eyes and an empty belly with their hand out and saying, help us. In this instance, the New Deal was demanded by the public and was necessary, appropriate, and correct. I've come some distance in my thinking on this over the years, but when people are desperate, paying them to dig holes and fill them back up again does make a lot of sense to me. Moreover, let us remember that the New Deal gave us the amortized mortgage. Prior to the New Deal changes, you had to have 50% down on a house, and the maximum amortization period for a home was five years. The government changed that. You could stretch it out to 20 years or more. Moreover, Roosevelt jettisoned the gold standard when he took office, which in my view was the single greatest act that could have been done to promote recovery, reflate the economy, and free us from the downward spin cycle we were in with a deflationary vortex that basically took the entire world into the Great Depression. Now, other people disagree with that. I don't. When Roosevelt took office in March of 1933, he wasn't sure he was going to leave the gold standard. It wasn't until the World Economic Conference that they went there, and he said, well, maybe I will. Professor George Warren from Cornell University was encouraging him to increase the, the, the price of gold up to $35 an ounce, which they ultimately did. But when Roosevelt started to talk about maybe going back on the gold standard, the stock market fell that very same day, and he said, oh, the hell with this. So he made the right executive decision and dropped the hammer on it, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. In addition, the New Deal gave us the Federal Reserve as we know it today. There never used to be a Federal Open Market Committee. There was no Board of Governors until the Banking Act of 1935. Moreover, the New Deal paved 750,000 miles of highway between Nebraska and California. It was a gravel road. It was a mud puddle. Now, we know for sure, I think from the research, that when you pay, it's not build it and they will come, but if you pave something, that will bring industrial development, or it's certainly a necessary ingredient for that to happen. Moreover, like it or love it, the modern social safety net had its genesis during the New Deal. That's what gave us Social Security. Now comes the but. But the new, the new Deal also gave us the National Industrial Recovery Act and the NRA, not the gun toters, but the National Recovery Administration. It was a combination of bad microeconomics that had terrible macroeconomic outcomes. It does not oversimplify the case to say that Roosevelt needed to reflate the economy, and he could do so either by increasing aggregate demand, decreasing aggregate supply, or both. The National Recovery Administration was all about decreasing aggregate supply to raise prices and wages. So raise prices and wages by cutting output and employment during the greatest economic downturn we've ever had. Roll that statement over in your head one more time. We're going to reflate the economy and raise prices by cutting output and destroying jobs. So when Roosevelt took office, he didn't quite know what to do. So what did he do? He called up Hugh Johnson, who ran the NRA. And he called up Bernard Baruch. And he said, help me. What should I do? 
They said, well, you know, we planned the war during the First World War. That came to a successful conclusion. Let's reach back for things that we know, which I suppose is natural enough. They said, bring us to Washington and we'll plan the economy from Washington. And we'll plan our way out of this. That's all well and good, but setting an economy on a wartime footing in the absence of war is a hell of a way to have to run it. As Amity Schlaes points out in The Forgotten Man, one statistic that I'll give you that I think should floor you like it floored me. From 1789 to 1933, there were 2,785 pages of federal statutes that had been created. By June of 1934, Roosevelt and the NRA had increased that by 10,000 pages. Now, you couldn't have read it all. And if you read it all, you couldn't have understood it. And if you understood it, you'd need a team of lawyers to try to enact it so to make sure that you followed it correctly. It got so bad that the NRA even instructed people how to properly kill chickens. And if you didn't kill chickens the right way, you were subject to prosecution, thus the Schechter brothers. An NRA Nazi was in their shop one day and, and saw that they didn't properly grab the chickens from the cage the right way as prescribed by the manual, and they were prosecuted. The Schechter brothers deserve to be American folk heroes for standing up to the government and saying, no, enough's enough. To Roosevelt, the culprit for the Great Depression was excessive competition. That's what caused the Great Depression. So cartels and price fixing were the way out. The hostility toward business and the tax and regulatory uncertainty chilled investment and entrepreneurs' assessment for the future for a decade and reduced entrepreneurial risk-taking and investment. In the work that I've done, there's many questions that the Great Depression brings to mind. What started it? Why was it so deep? Why did it spread so completely around the world? Why did it bottom out when it did? What brought on recovery? Why was the recovery so prolonged? What ended the Great Depression? And then the most common one, do you think the Great Depression could happen again? Well, that's still number one on the list at cocktail parties, social functions, or anybody that emails me and says, are we going to have another Great Depression? That's what they always want to know. But the one question in the academic literature that has moved from way on the bottom of the list to what I would call number two now, after could it happen again, is why did the recovery stretch out and be as prolonged and persistent as it was? Well, the real business cycle people, of which Hal Cole is a very important contributor, they ask a fundamental question. What is it that prevents people from working and producing more? Simple elementary question. What stops them from doing it? One thing the academic research has pointed out is that the National Recovery Administration and its structure provides one of the fundamental answers to why the Great Depression was as prolonged as it was. I don't have any PowerPoint. I'll be brief. So let me just close with the following thought. Let me gently remind everyone, for parallels to today, very simple. The demand for labor is a downward-sloping function of its price. In addition, if you raise the cost of production, you'll get less output, for certain. We in economics know this. So raise the cost of labor 
today, healthcare, cap and trade, card check, fill in the blank, and you'll get fewer jobs. It was true in the 1930s, and it remains true today. Thank you very much for listening. Final speaker for this panel is Price Fishback. Uh, Price is the Frank and Clara Kramer Professor of Economics at the University of Arizona. He's also a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research and co-editor of the Journal of Economic History. Price has written numerous books on economic history and labour economics and is currently editing and contributing to a book on the government's role in the economy from colonial times to the present, designed for readers who are not specialists in economics. Uh, Price is also the author of three of a must-read series of blog posts on the current financial uh, situation. They can be read on the Freakonomics blog. It's a blog of the New York Times written by the authors of Freakonomics. Uh, I strongly recommend it uh, to you as some of the clearest writing on the subject that I've, that I've read. Uh, please welcome Price Fishback. So thanks, Sally. So I, I should point out that the book that, that Sally was re- referring to about the government and the American economy is actually on sale. <laughs> out in the... <laughs> no, that's okay. I forgot to send her the biography, so she had to pull it off some other spot. So, so I'd like to, you know, someone was mentioning how economics is not a science, so I'd like to make a joke, uh, make a challenge. I'm going to stick a $20 bill on a table out there, and I'm going to ask you, what does physics predict is going to happen to that bill? And then what does economics predict? <clears throat> so we'll test some science here later on today. Now, I'd like to go on in that vein in the following way, because I am, I am, all economists are a little bit, yeah, they feel a little bit bad about this idea that we know nothing, so, or we, we seem to know nothing. So let's talk about two different observational sciences, cancer research and economics. Cancer research, we know a lot of things. We know that it's not good to smoke. It's not good to be overweight. We know that chemotherapy works in some situations and not at others. We know that certain forms of chemotherapy work in some situations and not in others. Trouble is, we don't know exactly what the proper weights are, and so people disagree on what those proper weights are. Have we cured cancer yet? Nope. Okay, let's talk about economics and the Great Depression. Here's what almost every economist agree, agrees with, and the difference is, is how much weight they put on each of these. They all agreed that the Federal Reserve was too slow to react in response to the banking crisis. They all agreed that there were problems with the gold standard, and we know that when people went off the gold standard, that the economy is all, rep- all improved. Now, the question is, is why? We don't know for sure what the causal mechanisms are. We all know that there were negative shocks to the economy that are kind of hard to measure. We all know that raising taxes by Hoover was a mistake, that the Holly Smoot Tariff Act was also a mistake, and that was also a Hoover administration situation. We know that the National Recovery Administration was a big mistake. The real differences between what the economists disagree on is, is how much weight to give to each. How, for example, gives a lot more weight to the NRA and to high-wage policies than, say, Christy Romer does or, say, Milton Friedman did. Milton Friedman puts a lot more weight on money supply than Hal did, than Hal does. But we all agree that these things were problems. It's just how much weight do you have? Now, have we been able to prevent all the depressions? No. Can we expect to be able to prevent all depressions? Probably not. Now, we'll say this, though. Now, for some reason, and who knows why, We've had a lot fewer recessions in the last 30 years than we had in any other time before. It's pretty amazing, one every 10 years. That's pretty spectacular. Now, I'm not going to take credit for it as a group of economists, so because there's all sorts of things that could be going on. So let me go on about this and talk about a variety of other things. Uh, 
I've been spending the last 10 years, 12 years of my life working with Sean Cantor and Bill Horace and Michael Haynes and about five or 10 or even 20 other co-authors to try to get a, an understanding of what was going on during the 1930s from a, from a, a, a disaggregated perspective. We use county-level data. We use city-level data. We use individual-level data. A lot of this stuff, I mean, we've been, we've been, it took us a long, long time to collect the data, and so a lot of this stuff is just now hitting the journals. And so we've developed a lot of knowledge about what's going on, but it, you know, some of it's not getting out there yet. Some of it's in the book that I referenced. But I can say a few things about, so one of the more positive aspects of the New Deal was the, the relief programs. Now, G, real, the government spending, or federal government spending, as a share of real GDP went from about 4% in 1932 to about 8% in 1939. Okay, so this is a big change. Now, it wasn't like that, this, that the government for the first time got involved with relief. The difference was it was that the federal government got involved with relief. And so it turns out beforehand, all of this was state and local responsibility. And actually, we don't really have a very good quantitative record of what was going on beforehand. And I've got some students who I'm hoping are going to fix that. Because you had to go out and search through all these little town courthouses and things like this to actually find this information. So there was a, there were, in terms of income maintenance spending, they were probably spending by local government somewhere in the neighborhood of half percent or full percent of GDP on income maintenance for a lot of other people. Okay, and this is a lot, you know, unemployment was not as serious a problem in an agricultural society as it was before. That stuff was there. We probably spend about 2% now. So that's not too much different. Now, but when you have 25% unemployment as we did in 1932 and in 1933, you know, you're running into all sorts of big problems. The federal government steps in. They decide this is not a, not a local issue any longer. And they say that, okay, this is a national issue. We have to deal with this at the national level. So they start handing out a lot of money. And they hand out the money in all sorts of different ways. Uh, matter of fact, the distribution of the money is kind of, a, is kind of wild in some ways. You'd expect them to give a lot more money to the South, but they don't. They give it a lot to the West, where I live. Uh, so there's some politics being played, but they actually do a lot of what they say they're doing as well. So here are the positive effects that come out of spending the money on relief. Uh, it turns out that relief spending, you increase relief spending by about a dollar in the mid-1930s. And so uh, retail sales in a, a typical county that received that dollar would be up about 40 cents in 1939. Now, is that a multiplier? I'll come back to multipliers because we just started trying to estimate some multipliers. Turns out, though, if what you did was you spent the money on the, agri on the AAA, on the farm program during that time period, where you paid people not to produce, what you did was is it actually had a slight negative effect on, on retail sales during that kind of time period. And what happened was the farmers who received the benefits, and the lion's share of farmers receiving the benefits were large farmers, they were being paid not to produce on certain land, so they took the land out of production, and that actually caused a reduction in the demand for labor. So guess who took it in the shorts? Workers, farm workers during this time period. Now, we don't know what the true redistribution was because we're still working on trying to understand that as well. There's a lot of data out there. The number two thing that the New Deal did was actually collect data about what they were doing. So hopefully we're going to learn some lessons about what was happening as a result of this. Now, here's some other things that go on. It turns out that uh, we tried to look at this in another way. We have a paper that came out in the Review of Economic Statistics. A lot of these things are listed in this PowerPoint that's way too dense. Uh, what we did was we tried to look at, well, what's the effect on kind of not, people think of non-economic things. What's the effect on death rates and what's the effect on infant mortality? So it turns out that when you do these studies and you compare what's going on across all these different cities, like about 115 cities over like a 10-year period, and you look at how much was spent there and how much was spent, and you control for a bunch of other things, what you find is for about $2 million in modern dollars, we're talking about year $2,000 or so, 
For about $2 million, that, that seems to be associated with saving an infant's life. That $2 million probably saved maybe a suicide, prevented a suicide. Not prevented is a little bit strong. Maybe it just was correlated with preventing a suicide. It saved about two and a half deaths from diarrheal deaths and things like this. So they, they have some positive effects. Now, could it have worked better? There's some cra- We've done some other studies where it looks like that even with 25% and 20% unemployment, you spend more money on, on work relief jobs, things like this, it actually has an effect on the private market and actually reduces employment to some extent. How big that effect is, there are estimates all over the map on that. And so it's not easy to kind of tease out. This is not an easy thing to do. So anyway, so, you know, the, the real, I would say that the public works and relief jobs performance was actually pretty good in this context. And it was, as Randy pointed out in his comments, well, it was a pretty necessary type of thing. National Recovery Administration, I think, was a disaster. Uh, the, I, I actually am thinking about putting a poster of the Supreme Court in 1935 on my wall for saving us from the, from the National Recovery Administration. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about multipliers. All three of us were at this event in March in New York at the Council of Foreign Relations. And actually, Amity was there as well. She was the kind of the, the person who organized it. And one of the things that kept coming up was, what's the multiplier? You know, so when you spend a dollar, how much, more, how much money do you actually get? And so, I mean, we've, we saw discussions of the multiplier ranging from zero all the way up to one and a half. The old, when, I was a, when I was an undergraduate and a graduate student, uh, you know, the old textbooks always talked about Keynesian multipliers or two, of two or three. Okay, so what's our experience with, with estimating multipliers? Well, we can't use the New Deal because if you look at the, the graph in there, what you'll find is the New Deal did nothing like a Keynesian stimulus. They, ran, they came close to holding budget, the budget deficit to close to zero most of the time. So here's the big problem that we're trying to solve. Here's government spending, and here's the budget deficit. So that's not a Keynesian stimulus. You can't use World War II because we're fighting an all-out war. We're spending 44% of GDP fighting a war. We've put 17% of the, popul- of the labor force in the military. There's so much else going on that talking about a budget stimulus is just insane. Okay, and so the, K- the Kennedy tax cut, that's a big famous one as well. Well, that looks more like a supply-side cut in hindsight. They cut tax rates. Did you know that the budget deficit actually went down during the Kennedy tax cut? That's not a Keynesian stimulus. Most Keynesian president before Obama looks like Reagan. The Reagan-Bush administration, they were running budget deficits around 5 or 6%, but they talked about it in terms of supply-side stuff. Okay, so here's what, I try, what we tried to do. I've got a student at the University of Arizona who's a very good student named Valentina Kuchinovskaya. And she and I got together, and we collected all this information on how much was spent in each state by the New Deal programs, and how much tax revenue was collected from each state by the federal government. For the period prior to the New Deal, the primary program that was handing out money to all the states was the highway program, so we put those together, we, we added those in, so we could go back to 1920. And so if you look on the first page of the handout I gave you, this, is, this gives you an idea of what the multipliers look like. You know, people talk about how you can lie with statistics. Well, I guess that's true, but if you're careful and you do the, do the job right, maybe you can actually learn something from the statistics. And I will say this, it's a lot easier to lie without statistics than it is with statistics. <laughs> okay, so here's the big problem that you face. One of the things you want to do is you want to control for a lot of other factors that might have caused changes in, in output and changes in income during this period. And the second problem, and this is particularly thorny for me in, in dealing with the New Deal and people who study it, which is why it's taken a long time to publish some of these papers, is how do you deal with the problem where the federal government is not just handing the money out randomly? 
If they would, if they had been, if they'd just thrown it out randomly in some way, it'd be a great natural experiment we could run because you don't have to worry about why they gave the money to where they did. All right, so what you have to worry about is the fact that they gave the money out because there were places in trouble, and so they gave more money to the places that were in trouble. All right, and so what happens is if you actually just throw the data up there on a graph and graph it and draw a line in it, what you're going to find is the relationship between the budget deficit, quote, budget deficits in each state in terms of New Deal budget deficit in each state with the with real with with income during that time period, what you're going to find is a negative relationship, like 0.88 for every dollar they spent, real income went down by by 88 cents. But you haven't taken into account all these other factors that were important, and you haven't taken into account these two-way effects, what the, why the government's spending the money where it is. And so that's really important that you have to deal with. And this is a thing, this is a reason why it's so hard with dealing with all the, all the various research you see in the newspapers all the time. You have to look very carefully at each study to see how it was done and what variables were included and how they, cal how they got rid of this two-way problem. All right, so here's what we tried to do. This is pretty standard stuff in economics these days for reduced form people like me. And that is, we want to control for various factors that are pretty much time invariant, like the geography of the location you're looking at. So one of the things we do is we, try to, we use a thing called fixed effects to try to control for what each state is doing, or what each state looks like over time. You want to control for these big shocks that are going on nationally during this time period, Holly Smoot Tariff Act, you know, tax rate changes and things like that. And so you want to include time effects in there. And another big thing you want to take into account, and this is something that Hal did a nice job of doing today, is you want to take into account what the natural trends are in these states. Okay, so those are the three things you want to do. And what happens is, is that uh, if you take care of all of those things, you still got to worry about this endogeneity issue, which is the problem of the two-way effect, which is why is the government handing the money over there? So we tried a way known as instrumental variables to try to resolve that issue. Once you go through it at the bottom of the page, what you'll see is we came up with a number that for every dollar they spent, the state income in that area, real state income in that area, went up by about 65 cents. Okay, now this is a, this is a point estimate in a statistical study. All right, so those point estimates have big confidence bounds. And so usually people talk about the 95% confidence interval. How confident are you? So what I did is on the right-hand side next to that 0.65, I give you what the confidence interval is. All right? They don't give that to you most studies when they read about them in the newspaper, although they're in the original papers. All right? And so the 95% confidence interval is it could be as low as 0.19 and could be as high as 1.11. That's what we know is statistical confidence based on the best thing that I think I can come up with in trying to deal with this issue. And we don't have very many opportunities to do this because we haven't run very many Keynesian experiments. And even the one that I'm doing right now has problems because it's not the entire economy. You have to worry about the fact that these are the re these are all these kind of economies are interacted. So how much time do I have? Okay. So anyway, so the point about this is is to to get across. I mean, it, it's not it's actually not that surprising that people come up with a lot of different estimates of the multiplier because there are just not that many opportunities to estimate them. And like you know, could I would I throw my life on this? Well. The one thing about this, I'm a little hesitant about talking about this today in the fact that I have, this paper hasn't gone through the refereeing process. It hasn't been beaten up by other people. We're going to present it, the full paper, and talk about it in depth at the National Bureau in, in July. And then we're going to start trying to go out and get it published and stuff. So, you know, things may change around as we learn more from my colleagues. I think what, what you want to think about in terms of all this discussion of the Great Depression and what it has to say for today is that we're having a conversation about what's going on. 
Okay, the Great Depression is one analog that people have been using, one story people tell. The better our knowledge we have about the past, the better stories we can tell about the past, the more accurate stories we can tell about the past, the more we can maybe say things about what's going on currently. And so there are a lot of things that are going on currently. I agree with Hal. This is nothing like the Great Depression. We're nowhere near anything like the Great Depression. Uh, the Great Depression was so bad that you know, unless you live through it, you just have no conception of it. And most of the people who lived through it were kids and just were not aware of just how bad things were. So I'm pretty optimistic about the future. To admit, I'm a little bit worried about the, the automobile stuff. Uh, one of the things that we did learn from a study by the Great Depression by Joe Mason and uh, Daniel Schenkman is they did this study where they looked at uh, RFC bailouts of the railroads during the 1930s. And one of the things they found was is that the, the companies that went through bankruptcy did more to improve maintenance expenditures and also to do investments in future capital stock than the companies that received the RFC loans. Now, there's all sorts of issues that could be going on as to why that occurred, but that might want to make you think about, well, you know, bankruptcy procedures seem like a reasonable thing in a lot of various, various areas. And so there are all sorts of issues going on here. The Obama administration is doing a lot of different things. I'm not a real fan of creating a lot of uncertainty during times of crisis. Uh, I think that uh, I don't think we're anywhere nearly in as bad a shape as we were during the Roosevelt period. And so I'll just end with that. Thank you. Thank you, Price. Uh, I've learned more about the Great Depression today than I have in my 33 years of life up to now, because most of my knowledge was from my grandfather, who's so affected by it, he still washes and recycles saran wrap. Um, we, have, we have about 25 minutes for, for questions from the audience. Um, just to restate the ground rules, please wait for the microphone to reach you before asking your question and state your name and affiliation so that we know who you are. And most importantly, please make sure your question is indeed a question. A, our time today for Q&A is limited. Um, I urge you to get straight to the point. First question, up the back there, yes. Brief questions. My name is Stephen Shore. The first is, when the Federal Reserve was established in 1913, it was, some thought, a new, a third bank of the United States in all but name, and others say that we, that the Great Depression was an ultimate consequence of Andrew Jackson's effort in abolishing the second bank of the United States. So my question is, would it have been better to keep a single bank of the United States? Is this a theoretical possibility that might have prevented or mitigated the Depression. And the second question is, Glass-Steagall, was this a, a solution in search of a problem, or did it really have good consequences that we got rid of at our peril in recent years? I can take that. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm not an expert on that. I'm not sure. The second bank in the United States has often been called somewhat of a central bank. It wasn't a true central bank in the normal sense. Because the second bank, basically the, the primary power it has that the federal government's money was deposited there. Uh, you know, they had this big fight between Jackson and everybody along those lines. I, the, central, the second bank was probably not a – the second bank of the United States was probably not a true central bank in the normal sense of the, of the word. When we got rid of it, we went through a long periods of time where we had cycles and things like this. It's not clear that that would have made much difference. I think the, probably the Federal Reserve is a, is a better designed system than that because uh, it actually has a lot more relationship with what's going on during that time period. And what was the second part? It was the Glass-Steagall. So I'm not a real expert on Glass-Steagall. I will say this. I think that the biggest problem that's, that everybody's been worried about, this too-big-to-fail problem, 
Okay, and so uh, my sense is is that if you're going to have something that's too big to fail, you want to have it pretty well isolated. And so given the banking functions that you have for clearing checks and all those kind of things like that, it may make sense to separate those out in that context. Now, that said, though, you have to realize that Glass-Steagall, when they pulled it off or wherever, most of the problems that came out were not a problem associated with, with the Glass-Steagall Act. I mean, most of the activities that were done, they could have done even with the Glass-Steagall Act in place. And so in some ways, in, the, in kind of this ironic way, Glass-Steagall actually was kind of a saving grace because it allowed you to take those failing uh, investment banks or whatever and turn them into banks. And so, at least temporarily. Now, so we need to rethink, we need, still need to think about what's going on in that area, though. Let me just add one uh, additional comment to prices, which is, as you start insuring entities, um, you know, the regulatory problem becomes much more severe. And then the question is, what do we want to allow entities to do who we're going to be insuring? And allowing them a lot of flexibility to do wild things on their balance sheets is a very dangerous enterprise. So you can see why you want to limit the activities of the of the, institu- uh, the institutions that you're insuring. So you can understand why that impulse was there. Let me also add, uh, at least for today, I think by far what was more damaging was the SEC law that changed in 2004 that permitted 33 and 40 to 1 leverage ratios. Um, I have some friends in the Federal Reserve. I talked to them just the other day. And when they went through the books of Citibank, I think the final number was they were leveraged 56 to 1. Well, that, that's just madness to me. And so I wouldn't look at uh, Graham Leach blyly so much as the culprit because the Europeans have run on that model for years and years and decades and decades. But I would look at that change in the leverage ratio that just, just permitted this uh, speculative madness. Scannon Cato. Uh, may I suggest that one of the more important lessons from the 30s is that the economic policies of the, regu- of the Roosevelt administration were very similar to the economic policies of the Hoover administration, with only one big exception, and that was the Hoover administration let the money supply drop by a third between 29 and 33. But in labor policy and in, uh, in industrial policy and in tax policy, uh, the policies of the Hoover administration were very similar to that of the Reagan, uh, of the Roosevelt administration, and uh, it was it was not really a New Deal period. It was a, a massive bipartisan change in economic policy. It's actually pretty true, right? I, mean, I, I have I have some I have some disagreements there. I don't and remember the, praising Hoover. <laughs> No, I have some disagreements in the following sense. The federal government got much more involved in in relief than they ever did under Hoover. The most that Hoover did in that context was to provide some loans, and they just didn't distribute it very much. Eight level, too. Uh, Yeah, they distributed to cities, actually. Uh, The other feature of it, too, was that Hoover was jawboning with respect to those things, whereas I think that the NRA was much more codifying those kind of things. And so that would be the other area where I disagree. Yeah, they were more aggressive, definitely. Oh, and, and, and Roosevelt did reverse the tax, the tariff issue. So because Roosevelt, with the reciprocal trade agreement, started moving away from the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act. So in that sense, he was much better than Hoover. He reversed prohibition, too. <laughs> You're going for the drinking? Pack? I'll drink to that. Well, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a libertarian place here, and uh, the, it seems that the last two uh, prominent presidents. State your name, sir, please. Oh, I'm Richard Howard. I'm sorry, I'm a Cato sponsor. Uh, uh, Ron Paul and Harry Brown before him are both uh, gold bugs, hard money guys who would go back to the gold standard. Um, is uh, is there any way for a libertarian to not be a hard money person, or is there any possibility of actually getting rid of the Federal Reserve? Why don't we go back to bloodletting too? <laughs> let me let me just say this as, as as simply as I can, because it took me a lot of years before I finally realized it and had somebody explain it to me. James Hamilton is the one that explained this to me. Um, and I think he's the greatest macroeconomist on the face of the earth right now. Given that the world price of gold was fixed, that imposes deflation on your economy for sure any time the relative price of gold changes. So if the value of gold relative to potatoes increases, when the price of gold is fixed, that means that the price of potatoes, in terms of dollars, must fall. So you wed your domestic price level to the vicissitudes of the relative change in the price of gold, giving you de deflation or inflation. And I think the Great Depression demonstrates that, that worldwide, just how disastrous that is. Now, Alan Meltzer, who I'm sure all of you know, he said in my second book, we don't have the gold standard today because we don't know about it. We don't have the gold standard today because we do. And I would reiterate that. So I've got a response to that, too. I, I would add two other things to it. One is, is that the gold standard is only as good as long as it's staying. If, if you're going to rely on it, it's only good as long as that the amount of gold that's available is staying relatively fixed or growing at the size of the economy. We're one huge gold strike away from having all sorts of inflation associated with gold. And the other feature of it is, is that no matter what system you're going to pick, if you've got a lot of uncertainty in the economy, it's going to cre start creating problems. And the gold standard just causes flows go back and forth wildly between countries. In, the, re fixed, in the, the free exchange rate system, it just causes the exchange rate to fluctuate. So it's just which one do you want to pick? I'd, I'd add that, you know, uh, banks today and, the, and in the, the Federal Reserve has actually been very good at maintaining low inflation and having a you know, a fairly conservative policy in that regard. So they've actually done a, a, a good job of that. Um, and I'd also add that uh, government has some very important positive roles to play. I mean, we've talked about insurance, but also the Fed and deposit insurance and, and a whole list regulation, uh, Bernie Madoff. I mean, you know, the, the government has some important positive functions. Uh, I'm down here. Just here. Thank you. Might I, might I just add one more point? If, if, if we were still on the gold standard today and the dollar was devaluing or depreciating, the Fed would be forced to raise interest rates right now. Would that be the right policy response? That would be an absolute disaster. David Wardley, Leadership Institute. My question is directed towards Mr. Parker. Do you believe that if we enacted um, – multiple policies that are on the table right now, like cap-and-trade that increase the cost of production, that we could actually push our economy towards a depression? I think depression is a little bit uh, too strong. However, I could see a Frenchifying of our economy where 
we had four to four and a half percent unemployment during the glorious years, or however you want to label them, in the early nineteen, uh, in the late nineteen nineties, and the two thousands, so that our long run Nehru rate of unemployment would climb to six and a half or seven or seven and a half percent. So people ask me the question now: Well, how long is it going to take for us to get back to where we were? And my answer is: We're not going back to where we were. I think that the full employment level of unemployment is going to rise and rise substantially. And that would be one reason why that would happen. So they say 50 is the new 40. Well, seven and a half will be the new four and a half. That's more controversial. Let me. It depends on the overall level of government. Do you think 60 is the new 40? No, it's just. Cap and trade, it depends on the overall level of taxation. I mean, you could do it efficiently through cap and trade and not have an increase in the overall level of taxation. So I'm not sure. No, we have an empirical experiment, then. It's going to play out here. <laughs> yeah, we do. Fair enough. Um, yes, this lady just... Thank you. Ruth Rambo, I'm a private citizen interested in the humanities and the recovery in the Great Depression my understanding included some maintenance and sustaining of the arts and I don't see any kind of comparable effort coming down the pike now. What is your prediction? What's your concern? And does it have does it have economic implications not to include the arts in in recovery? I would simply point out, you guys can pick it up from there that Jackson Pollock was a product of the New Deal support for the arts. Um, that's, that's, that's where he came from. Um, and so um, over to you, uh, Bryce. Well, see, we, we have, see, one of the things is, is we have so much more support programs now at the federal level or federal state level than we had before. We're, we support the arts in all sorts of different ways and ways we didn't before 1930. So do we need an additional stimulus to the arts in this situation? I don't know. It's hard to say. And then there's the controversies related to how do you decide, you know, there's all those battles about the arts in those kind of settings. I don't see it as an economic issue. I think it's just a, it's a social issue about what you want to do for the arts and who do you want to have support it. So I don't see it as a stimulus thing. Jean Montgomery. I'm curious about uh, your take here on the uh, availability of information about the situation to the various decision makers. I've read that Roosevelt didn't have any training as an economist, and even uh, and you have to assume that we didn't have the knowledge in at that time that we now have, partly as consequence of having gone through the depression. Witness our entire uh, conference today. Uh, well, what what, uh, what what was your understanding about how much? decision makers understood at the time about what was going on, what data did they have, what data did they want to have, uh, how did they pay attention to it? Well, here's the kind of information they would have at the local level and things like that. So they didn't have unemployment measured the way that they measure it today. They did have statistics. Every state was collecting information on how much employment was available at various retail stores. And every, every month there was information coming to the Bureau of Labor Statistics about that kind of information. 
they ran three or four different censuses during the 1930s. The, the Civil Works Administration did these large-scale surveys of like 66 cities during, in 1934 to see what was going on with housing markets. I mean, they collected a huge amount of information uh, keeping white-collared employ- people employed during the, during, with the WPA and those kind of groups. Um, did they have as good information as we have today? No, and it didn't come out in as real-time a fashion as it did. Uh, Roosevelt probably is as well-trained in economics as most of the presidents that we've had. <laughs> and uh, so, as a matter of fact, you know, usually politicians don't pay that much attention to what the economists have to say. Uh, <clears throat> so, all the, you know... They've got some, some kind of economic model in mind, and there's a, the famous old Keynes quote about whether it's a crazy madman from 50 years before or not. Um, I, I, really, it's mostly about information flow. The people that he surrounded himself with were, I would not consider the leading economists of their generation. I would, you know, they were kind of, they were okay, but not, not the leading people of the generation. As far as the uh, Federal Reserve is concerned, the Federal Reserve is basically driven by something that was known as the Real Bills Doctrine that they didn't believe that loans should be extended for anything else other than productive purposes. So if somebody had a bicycle shop and he wanted to stock his inventories for the spring, he could get a loan from his bank and his bank would rediscount it so that people would come to the Fed and borrow. So as long as people were borrowing, the Fed would make those loans for productive purposes and thus be backed up with production or what, what was known as real bills. So the Fed was basically looking at borrowing, and as long as people were borrowing, they were doing their job. But if people weren't borrowing, well, why is this our problem? So they look out the window in 1932, and they'd say, you know, the unemployment rate is 20%. Are you going to do something about it? They're saying, we're doing what we, what, what we should be doing. The discount window's open. If people don't want to borrow, that's not our problem. They looked at the monetary base. They knew what that was back then. And they looked at the price of gold and, moreover, interest rates. Interest rates were almost zero, and they'd say, you know, interest rates are almost zero. What do you mean it's a tight monetary policy? It's a loose monetary policy. Leave us alone. Go talk to somebody else. Go bother somebody else because we're doing our job. There's one other interesting feature about the Fed during that period, though. It it was a group of 12 regional banks, and so some banks did not actually subscribe to the real bills doctrine. So Atlanta, for example, just poured money in. And there's a fellow named Gary Richardson at the University of California at Irvine who's done this study where he looks at the, the bottom half of Mississippi was in the Atlanta district, and the top half was in the St. Louis district, which was a real bills dot. And so, so Gary did this study where, and this turns out in the southern half of Mississippi, they had a lot fewer bank failures than they did in the northern half of Mississippi. And then he slices it. So are you within 10 miles of that borderline? Well, the one that was south had fewer bank failures than the one that was north. And so it's kind of an interesting experiment. And so it turns out that there are several other states that are split this way. And so he plans to do the study and to see how well it holds up over these other places. Just on the front here, Arnold. Arnold Kling, I I was curious about something that Hal raised that the, uh, if I understand correctly, that the productivity has been maintained better in this great recession than, let's say, other post-war recessions. And I'm wondering if that's a good thing or not, that the reason productivity collapses is that you, you kind of retain workers because you know that there's going to be a comeback in that industry. And the reason you jettison workers is you don't think that there's going to be a comeback in this industry. So maybe we just have a lot more adjustments to make going forward. That's an excellent question. I mean, in terms of trying to sort out what the implications are, um, 
it's tricky. What I what you come away thinking is that if we don't end if we end up seeing an, an employment driven downturn out of what looks to have been a financial crisis as an economist that's interesting because it suggests that finan- there is a big distinction between a financial crisis as opposed to a normal uh, downturn and that a financial crisis seems to largely operate through a, an employment based downturn um, so far the little bit of evidence that we have is consistent with that we're going to have to wait and see because this is sort of real time, if you know what I mean, and the, the evidence is still, uh, we're waiting for it. Um, another question? Yes, this gentleman at the back. Uh, Chao Chen, freelance correspondent. Uh, 1929 is quite strange, uh, was quite a strange year. Uh, as Harold told us that uh, uh, product peaked on July, and then stock market increased on uh, September, but it corrupted uh, December. What's really going on? Uh, are any, were anybody uh, manipulated the, the stock market? Anybody can take it? Thank you. Well, I want to caution you that even today, there's still debate about whether or not the stock market in 1929 was oversold or not, or whether it was a speculative bubble or not. People are still publishing credible research papers and credible journals arguing whether it was or whether it wasn't. The point I'd like to make is, is it doesn't matter whether it was or it wasn't. The Federal Reserve thought that there was a speculative bubble, and they took action in, Jan- in January of 1928 to go out and end what they saw as the speculative bubble in the stock market by raising interest rates and imposing monetary stringency. So that was speculative credit that they thought was being created, created under the Reels Billets Doctrine, and they wanted to stop that. So the Fed tried to manipulate the market, and uh, that's one on the bad side of the ledger, that when they've tried to do something with bubbles, it didn't really have a very happy outcome. But even today... Uh, for example, Prescott would tell you, no, the market was priced just about right and there wasn't a speculative bubble. So we still don't know the answer to that question. Okay, final question down here at the front. Thank you, Miranda Zaf, IMF. In response to Professor Parker, I think the mistake was to have uh, come back to the gold standard after the First World War at the pre-war parity, even though the price level had risen 40% during the 20s. So the, the gold standard did exactly what it was supposed to do. It brought the price level down to the 1914 level. So to blame it on the gold standard is like not acknowledging the policy mistake of pegging it at the wrong level. Would you agree with that? I think certainly England was overvalued. I think that the French were undervalued. That's all well known. But I think ultimately, because of what I've said once again, linking your aggregate price level, and by the way, the internal balance of your domestic economy to the preservation of a fixed exchange rate regime and external balance is not something that today's modern America is going to accept. 
to fluctuate the price level and the unemployment rate and our aggregate output in order to keep the price of gold fixed and exchange rate in a fixed exchange rate regime is not something that today's modern America is going to accept, nor should. Just, just to follow up, and this is something that, you know, is very much, I mean, there's some things that economists debate on, and this is one that's just right down the pike in terms of uh, conventional wisdom, which is there was a collapse in the money multiplier because people pulled their money out of banks. That collapse meant that M1 went in the tank, and when the money supply goes in the tank, the price level falls dramatically. And, you know, the, any notion that the government should be stabilizing the price level means that you want to have the flexibility to re- be able to respond aggressively. And one of the big strikes that everyone points to is the fact that the Fed, you know, did not respond aggressively uh, at that time. But, in fact, couldn't under the constraints of the gold standard. So... We'll have to leave it there, but uh, hopefully there'll be opportunities for you to speak to our panellists at the reception this afternoon. We'll be serving alcohol too, so the answers are going to get really interesting. (laughs) Uh, We're going to have a short break now. Uh, There'll be coffee served upstairs, but please be back here at 3.15 sharp for the uh, panel on the constitutional legacy of the New Deal. Thank you. Thank you so much for including me.